Hi, this is Ben Dominich, the host of the Federalist Radio Hour. We're a daily show coming to you five days a week from Washington, D.C., where we interview our nation's top journalists, politicians, authors, chefs, economists, entertainers, and more. If you're looking for a contrarian discussion on news, politics, or culture, give us a listen and subscribe at podcastone.com, the new Podcast One app, or at Apple Podcasts. Welcome to Dr. Who Podcast. Check out Dr.com. Click through the Amazon banner. Check out our family of pods. Go to our Facebook page. Set up us up at con- the contact list. Do all the good stuff. I'm dispensing with that and getting into our guests because I'm very excited to talk to Dan Carlin. Podcast is Common Sense, available on iTunes as well as Hardcore History, also on iTunes. The website is Dan Carlin with a C, C R L I N dot com. Twitter is at Hardcore History. And it's a privilege to have you, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I, I said first I would talk a little about you before we get into history because I wanted I want you to help me because okay. uh, no I, I mean I I love the human experience and the human experience you know I'm deeply embedded in the neurobiology and the psychology and to some extent the anthropology of humans and and even some of the more sort of spiritual kinds of ideas about humans. But it all unfolds in a socio-historical context, and and that part is probably my weakest link. So uh, I, I need to be educated there. It's funny, and the things I st- studied least in college are the things I'm preoccupied with now to try to fill in where I didn't get trained in college. I think as we get older, it starts to make a little bit more sense because you have your own personal history, and then you start to realize, oh, yeah, my personal history on a mass scale is everybody's personal history. And so then a couple more lifespans, and it starts to make more sense, I think. But like you said, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the psychological aspect too. Yeah. But I, I try to look at the difference between individual psychology and then what happens to us when we get taken sort of as a group. Which is different. Yes, we sort that? of devolve to the mean. You know? Was it the fifth cycle? Was that that book about the different cycles in uh, yeah, population histories? It's, it's worth a read. I forget what it's called. Pre- Help me, Chris. I think it's called the fifth cycle or something like that. And it's about how these cycles of essentially personality profiles in groups of humans sort of repeat themselves. Right. And, and that, that kind of predicts uh, certain events. Uh, so anyway, so you grew up where? Uh, here, Los Angeles. In what part? Uh, Toluca Lake for about half my life and out in Calabasas for the second half. Fantastic. And you go to high school? Calabasas the... High School. Nice. And college is a boulder. Did you get a graduate degree or is your simple, just b- simple, simple BA? And I'd still be there if I hadn't forced myself out because I like that environment. And I, I could have fallen into the 51-year-old grad student pretty easily. It, it, in fact, it seems to my son's lived, lived in uh, Boulder for a while. And it, it seemed to me it, it has a sucking sound associated. Yeah. Very similar like Santa Barbara. Some it's places like, are like that, leave. aren't they? Yeah, some yeah, places I, just drag you I, in. And I literally – Santa Barbara was one of the places I thought about going for college. And, and I realized I, I would not – this would not uh-uh, – I would not be able to study and I would never it would just where are you going from here well plus i mean it's at least for me it's a stimulating environment you know i mean i would love to even today i was at stanford i d- did a speech there uh recently and, I, and you have dinner afterwards with a bunch of the people and a bunch of the people are auditing courses even now you know at 50 60 whatever oh yeah and i think to myself god you know i, I could enjoy doing that myself oh yeah if we had free time and exactly and t- we had t- free, tech money free, exactly what, what did you do before podcasting i was a radio show host yeah. uh, three hours a day five days a week i mean the whole thing and the tv report before that. And the radio, was it about history or was it just about news of the day? No, it was current events and, yeah. and politics and all that stuff. As a matter of fact, I mean, I don't even think anybody uh, in the in the so-called old media would have taken a chance on somebody. I mean, they would have said, Who, who's interested in history? Absolutely. And probably rightly Especially so. Especially deep history. And so as you got into it, did you worry people wouldn't be interested? 
No, because uh, you know it, the thing with the podcasting is everyone who listens to podcasts know is that there's you're much more willing to take a risk. First of all, it's not anybody else's money. It's not their station. It's not the ratings. If it wasn't working, you just let it die out. I guess. I mean, I felt like the risk was so much smaller. Yeah. It wasn't my idea. My mother-in-law actually was the one who said, "Why don't you tell these stories you tell us all the time?" Oh my god, that's hysterical. Yeah, and you know, and, and the funny thing is, if you listen to the early shows, I mean, I'm biased, of course, but I don't think they're that good. <laughs> so I think it's weird that it ever <laughs> caught on. Does that make sense? I mean, that's they had to wait funny. a while until they got good, maybe. Well, let's go. Let's talk about history. There, there are sort of. There's one period of history I'm preoccupied with, and this new Ron Cherno book just showed up on the coffee table here on Grant. Um, He's an interesting guy. Yeah, and I don't know a lot about him. I, I run Riverside Park to his tomb regularly and have walked down in there and walked around all the busts of all the different generals that are around the bottom there and read about how he died medically and all kind of stuff. Um, Throat cancer, right? Throat head and neck cancer. cancer, we call it head and neck yeah. cancer, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm deeply, well, I'd say... I don't want to say if knowledgeable is the right word, invested in the biography of Abraham Lincoln. I've read everything there is to read about him. Just because – this is how I got backed into history. I, I was you know, getting – studying the human experience and sort of reading and looking at things that interested me. And I'm like, this guy on the penny. I, I have this, this weird mythological image of who he is. But one day I just woke up and went, that's a human being. And as a human being, there's a there's a there's some story there. There's something something happened to that guy. What happened to him? What went on? I've spent so I spent a lot of time reading about his early years and what happened and trying to figure out what what went on and how he ended up the way he did. And I think I've got a pretty good idea who he was. Uh, any questions? <laughs> well, no. I was just, I was th- I'm thinking of General Sherman, one of Grant's yeah. underlings, and, and one of the things I remember, and, and I actually think about this quite a bit, was that. And I hope I get this right because I'm not a Civil War um, um, buff at all. But but General Sherman, as I recall, was one of these guys who before the Civil War had kind of failed at a bunch of different Grant things. Too. Grant, too. Grant so was an alcoholic, like full on. Yes, boy. full on. And yeah. But but with Sherman, you had things like I guess he tried to be like a grocer once and well, failed. Uh, apparently that wasn't that uncommon. That it was very common for young men. There was a sort of an entrepreneurial thing, particularly on the on the frontier, the, the border of the frontier, where you would take loans and buy goods and then try to sell them, or you would take buy goods and you would transport them one place or another. Lincoln did all that stuff, and when it, and you know there's this myth about him being a running a mail uh, like he was the mailman or something. He, had a, he was the mail postman. Well, he got the position as as the poster postal person for the city because he had the general store. And that's who got one that. goes with the other. That's and, right. Okay. And he failed routinely. He failed everything. It, everything went bankrupt that he did until he became an attorney. He, he was an abject failure. Though in the time, they didn't think about that as a failure. It's just like, well, it's just the way it, things come and go in our town. That's the way it goes. And you know, the price of beans went down, and that was the end of his uh, his ability to pay back the the loan that he took out for the corn or whatever. So they would say they lost their money with bad investments. That's what they always said. It was really more that they needed – because they needed that kind of infrastructure. So these little sort of heroic gestures to set up the infrastructure. But when they would fail, it was not, oh, yeah, just like just like uh, Mr. Uh, President uh, Trump. He went bankrupt. No, it was, well, he's out of business. Damn. And on to the next thing. Well, and so. the thing with Sherman that I found interesting was the the, the moral of the story is that, that by the time he becomes generals, uh, general, it had turned out that war had changed so much. Mm. We, and, and what often happens is nobody quite knows what skills or qualities are going to be really useful at in the next time. war. Yeah. And, it, and the story at least goes that, that Sherman's failures – 
all turned out to be in things that would be very useful in the upcoming war, but not that anyone knew. For example, I think the grocery store thing had to do with like a supply chain, and yeah. it turns out it helped him with logistics sure. later and all that. But I mean, I, I love that because I think it adds weight to the idea that, as you said, these aren't really failures. These are educational opportunities that didn't pan out financially yeah. but might help you later. Yeah. Well, I, I, to me, the way I think of it is nothing – I tell this to my kids. Nothing in your life can necessarily be unused. You can use everything you've learned, every experience you've had. Keep it in your in your back pocket. It can be used. I promise. Even if it's something silly. You can use it sometimes. Well, it makes you a more and, – and I was just talking about this. With somebody, it makes you a more formidable person. I mean if I examine the way I was at 23 or whatever when I got out of college and compare the, the me of then to the me now, the difference is, of course, all the experiences you've had mm-hmm. since and, and how that makes you the kind of person that can do something like what we're doing now, which yeah. I couldn't have done this out of college. You no, know? absolutely not. I completely agree with you. So, so the other period of history other than the one that usually preoccupies me, which is sort of Abraham Lincoln's life – that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the French Revolution. Oh, it's very interesting, yes. Do you, do you, you need to help educate me about that because I, I have my own ideas about it. And I don't know if they're accurate. But the current mob action, mob behavior in this country as expressed in the new electronic town square we call Twitter or social media or Facebook is absolutely the guillotine mentality. I mean everyone has to lose their livelihood. They have to be they have to be they have to be the equivalent of decimated or no, or the mob isn't happy. And uh, now we're starting to see where much like the Sanculotte and the uh, Jacobins, now the guys that were chopping the heads off yesterday, now they're getting their heads chopped off. I- eventually it just eats itself. And now that's starting to happen before it was, Hey, you guys need to behave yourself. Well, guess what? The guys that were saying that turns out they weren't doing so well. They had some issues. They're getting their heads chopped off. What happened in the French Revolution, and can you make an association between what we're going through now? Or is is it just a spurious sort of a connection? Well, everything when you do historical comparisons, as you know, is, is by definition apples and oranges. Yeah. But what you're trying to do is and, – and this is, gets actually to what we were talking about earlier, where to me, the one constant in the equation at all times, because the times change, the clothing changes, the values change, is people. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're talking, there are certain benchmarks. Let's just say pain mm. as an example. Mm. Pain is something that connects us through all the eras, right? Yeah. You, you may have nothing in common with an ancient Egyptian, but we both feel pain, and it's similar. Yeah. Um, and there used to be a theory that maybe because of cultural differences, people don't feel pain the way they used to. I mean, when I was growing up, they used to say things like, listen, in the Middle Ages, people were so much more used to not having pain relievers, and life was so much more painful that if you if you talked about torturing somebody, it wasn't as big of a deal to them as it is well, to us. <laughs> well, I, I think it sounds, it sounds ridiculous yeah. now, but once upon a time, they were giving, you know, they were suggesting that even those human qualities are, are apples and oranges over time. I think now it's easy to say, listen, we're all in a giant experiment. And what was Shakespeare's line? You know, all the world's a stage and all the people merely players. The sets change, the clothing changes, the values change. But we're pretty darn similar. So I look at us as like um, uh, hamsters or guinea pigs in an experiment. Uh, if you look, for example, at people throughout history that, in, you know, before the French Revolution, for example, one of the things people in France and in Paris like to do was co- go view public executions. Dur- yeah, well, yeah, sort of during the revolution. Yeah. Vicious, aw- no, even before. As a matter of fact, it's considered to be one of the reasons that the old regime uh, uh, was considered to be so hated because they would punish all these people. Oh, that's but the crowds would go to watch. Interesting to me because in my head, I make a connection between that mob behavior that is so problematic 
the other group of, of history, the period of history that I see a similar trend in is the Aztecs hmm. who would do these daily executions that everyone would gather around. There's, See, but to me, that's more religious. There's, there's a does, re- but still, the human. It, it, I'm sure the context is religious. But the little boy watching that happen mm-hmm. is just as traumatized. Whether you think it's to keep the sun coming up or to keep the king in power or whatever the fuck, they're seeing somebody's che- head cut off or chest opened up. They're traumatized all to hell. So then, the question is: Then is that the default human setting for? I mean, do, are we born? Are we, no, are we enjoy? Are we born enjoying watching others uh, uh, suffer in pain, and, and our culture has weeded that out of us, or is that something that that arises in certain periods? For example, you go to the games in the Roman Empire, and you say, "Did the Romans like that because that culture taught you to like it, or it was it tying into something much more human?" I, it, we can't do an experiment to parse that out, but but not here, but not now. <laughs> But, but aggression definitely can be in, in, intensified, right? Like in the Aztecs, they had this thing called a codex on how to rage children. And it was essentially holding children over fires and beating the crap out of them. And guess what you get when you, when you do that? Warriors. Perfect. You guys did warriors. But you also get people with out-of-control aggression. And one of the theories is, is the way to keep that from each individual killing each other in that society, killing your neighbors and everybody else – is to focus that aggression on one or something, something else. But that something else has to be collectively as a group aggressed against. So every day we got to kill somebody and we're all there. Okay, I feel, I feel purged. I feel better. I, that's, been, that's been gratified now. I can go through my day and not kill my neighbor, theoretically. Uh, and the fact that in, and when you see that emerge, those kinds of behaviors, lots of childhood trauma every time. In the pre-revolutionary France, they traumatized the shit out of their kids. I mean, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right, the great philosopher, the the gentle uh, native theory about human development and the social contract. He left five infants, five kids on the doorstep of of, uh, orphanages, five kids, and dragged that woman around that kept giving birth like his slave. This is how people treated each other in pre-revolutionary France. And this was the man of great virtue and kindness. There's an interesting um, author, Lloyd DeMoss, I believe is his name, and he's somebody who believes – and it's funny because Isaac Asimov used the same term in his in his foundation trilogy, but it's not the same thing. He, uh, it's something called psychohistory. Yes. And well, it, my wife studied psychohistory. Oh, OK. Right? OK. Yeah. Well, there you go. So yeah, it, would be, it was really starting to take hold in the 90s and then it got sidelined all of a sudden. Well, there are a lot of historians who don't love it, but, but it they was – should. Well, but it was something, it, it was something that, that involved – and we did a show on this. Uh, on one of the history shows was – was, we called it Suffer the Children. Yeah. And it was a question about did really, really horrific child-rearing practices, and not necessarily due to neglect, although including neglect, but yep. sometimes just a misdiagnosis of what a good you know kid needs growing up. Yep. Did that explain a lot of the weirdness or tragedy or whatever in history? 100%. You, like, you might like DeMoss's book. 100%. And it, the thing about, the, the strange thing about childhood trauma is that the thing that we find the most objectionable experience, we repeat it. Throughout our adulthood, repeat, hmm. repeat, repeat, repeat compulsively. It's called repetition compulsion. Freud identified it long ago, and it's never really been fully explained in terms of what the wiring is that creates that. But people who are sexually abused, magically, get raped in their teens and then either marry domestic violence or get raped again over and over. And now I, in sexual abuse, it's sort of – it's easier to see what's happening because whatever it is about the mechanism that causes attraction to somebody – gets broken or messed up by the sexual abuse. And so somebody who's sexually abused is naturally attracted to being around people in circumstances where just like the traumatizer. 
you'd think it'd be the opposite, right? If you got bitten as a dog, as a child, you want to stay away from the dog. This is that you go to that dog. Even the, the more that dog reminded you of the dog when you were a kid, the more likely you're to reach out to that dog, put so, your face in it. So what happens then? Okay, let's take this from the individual level, which yeah. makes total sense to yeah. me, and I can I can I can mentally envision that to a mass level, like a, you would call it a well, traumatized society. Right, and that's where the mob gets involved, right? That's when the mob starts collecting its aggression together and losing. Literally, you get high by being part of the, the mob, but the mob only acts out in an aggressive fashion. I mean, think about it. What do we do at a football game, right? We're, we're, we get it's, you, it's gratifying to be part of a mob, part of a crowd. But when that crowd becomes accelerated and agitated, what's it going to do? Go embrace somebody? Is it going to get into civil discourse? It's going to get aggressive. And well, in an answer, it, and in answer to your French Revolution question, you know, um, we think about the 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 cutting off of heads with the guillotine all yeah. the time, and what a bloody, terrible thing that was. I'm reading some stuff now that's just fascinating. It tries to reorient your thinking a little bit the, about the revolution, about the guillotine too. It that, was it was considered a medical instrument to make things clean and quick and easy for people. And 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 actually, when you consider what the regime that was overthrown in the French Revolution used to do to people, well, that's the part I didn't know. Ah, uh, well, 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 tell me about that. The favorite way to kill somebody. Um, this is this is Louis the Sixteenth. Yeah, th- this is the this is the ancient regime, you know, uh, as they called it, the pre the, regime. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is uh, it's called breaking, and there's different versions, either breaking on the wheel or breaking with the wheel. The Catherine wheel. Yeah. In Germany, they would do it uh, with the wheel itself. So Mm. so what they would do is strap people down uh, and they'd they'd put like slats underneath the joints. And then in Germany, for example, they'd take a giant wagon wheel and break your arms and legs and stuff with it. But in places like France, they would tie you to the wheel and then break all the limbs. And it would go on sometimes for hours and people would go to watch. Um, this so so for them the idea of just cutting off someone's head the the real um, pe- civil yeah well and the people that really objected to that in France at the time were objecting because they wanted the punishment to be as terrible as possible oh. because that's what deterred crime they thought the, the other thing is they needed it to go faster too right? yeah they if needed you needed to kill a lot of people yeah. the whole uh, they were talking about cutting off people's heads and how guillotine had had one where you could put five people in at once at one time oh I never saw that one. I heard about it. I don't think you ever used it, but he had a plan for a big one. No, but when you, it's funny when you read it because the, <coughs> the witnesses were talking about a device, meaning the mechanical guillotine, that, that just – that just eased you. They thought it eased you into death. One wow. minute you're alive and the next minute you're not. And that was fascinating to them because they've been going to executions that took four and five hours. And it was – some people, of course, it, echoing what you might hear today if people talked about going easier on the bad guys. Uh, that was just too easy. <laughs> I mean, just too easy. What's the deterrent in that? So you get your head cut off. But the ba- guillotine was, was – it was a doctor, right? It was Dr. Guillotine. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and, he, he, and, and once again, trying to make things better. Yes. He was trying <laughs> to make them more humane. Uh, and, and what's better than chopping repeatedly, I suppose, which is some of the work oh, that they got into. <laughs> yeah, when you start reading the, uh, yeah. the accounts of how it went, first of all, you know, the, the problem with, with, with things like beheadings and whatnot is that there's really no good way to do it if you're not good at it. And then when you say you're good at it, well, what does that mean, yeah. right? And, and, and what's the apprenticeship like? And how do you work your way up? I mean, right. uh, yes, it's, it's one of those subjects. Enough, enough of that. <laughs> you brought it up. I did. But, but it's – I'll I, go dark with you. It's <laughs> hardcore, hardcore history. Uh, but, but where I want to go is still the association between then and now and that people would gather to watch the beheading and feel gratified and satisfied by it. And I think people who are part of the social media acting out now f- have to feel that satisfaction of harming somebody 
before they go on to the next victim. They will not stop until somebody's harmed. So I, we have I like the virtual mob now is what you're talking about. Because if you go look at the founding fathers Absolutely. and you read the Federalist Papers, they were not huge fans of the mob. No, oh. and not just the mob, but the sort of rabble. They, they had a whole thing yeah. about you know, non-educated, non-land. It was a definite elitist situation. Oh, yeah. That's why we have a republic instead of an Athenian-style democracy. 100%, which, uh, again, those of you that are fans of direct democracy, 100% of direct democracies have failed, my understanding is, right? Well, everything's failed. Well, I mean, I mean <laughs> quickly, nothing, nothing quickly lasts. imploded. Quickly imploded. <laughs> Although here in California, we're attempting to have something like a direct democracy. Well, I heard somebody say that the United States of America is in a transition from a republic to a more direct democracy. But yes, I mean, I you know, once upon a time, I mean, I was just having this conversation with somebody, too. This country is supposed to be a country that's basically run by the legislature. Mm -hmm. And for all sorts of reasons, we've been empowering the executive for 200-some years. And now the legislature looks inane. You know, I mean, that's what's funny is this august body of the, the great senators and the great people. It looks inane, doesn't it? And, and so that's why I think almost by default, the power sort of devolves to the chief executive because they can do things without asking people sometimes. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Well, it wasn't the design. I mean, the perfect no. example, the best example you can think of is the separation of powers that says the guy – uh, who runs the country can't take you to war by themselves. And yet, here we go. <laughs> but it's the, it's the most common sense thing in the world, right? Yeah. Everybody, I was telling somebody the other day that, you know, one of the byproducts of Donald Trump might be that the legislat legislators right now for the first time ever are going, gee, that's a really dumb idea to have, you know, nuclear war power in the hands of one human being. But they didn't think about it 10 years ago and they didn't think about it 20 years ago. So in a funny way, the more we uh, put these people in power that maybe uh, scare uh, the uh, the powers that be, Maybe they start doing things they should have done anyway. Are, are you more of a Jeffersonian? Uh, I'm, a Je I'm, living, a, I'm a Jeffersonian. It's a well, living document constitution. No, more old republic <laughs> agricultural society. Agricultural society, states empower, empower the states. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Jeff Jefferson was a radical. And, and there's a lot of people that think because I can see both sides that I'm a moderate, but I don't feel like a moderate. Um, I, I feel a, a little bit like I don't fit, but I've always felt like I didn't fit. Like mm. you said, you know, both sides get angry with me because in this climate, you talked about the mob. For me, it's more that even trying to see nuance or trying to understand the other side is seen by, as if we had two sides, but let's just pretend, is seen more as almost being a collaborator. Yes. And I'm or, not or, used yeah. to that. And, and gray is a color that no one could see right, right now. And, and that's primitive. Again, it's, it's tribal. narcissistic, tribal bullshit that, that, that prevents discourse, that prevents uh, – any dyadic sort of uh, synthesis, you know. Well, then what's black and white? I mean, that's the part you turn around and go, if you're really looking at the world through black and white, what's ever been black and white? I mean, everything is shades of gray. Absolutely. And, and so the idea that there's one way and no way and we can't discuss anything else and anything else has to be shouted down, that's, that's, that's well, that's Maoist. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. A lot of times that is not the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they are not available. Not with True Car. Of course, I'm talking about True Car. You get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by True Car, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a True Car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Yeah, you know, and we talk about all the time. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. Next True Car, TrueCar.com or True Car app will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. 
Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. Over 3,000 True Car Certified Dealers are available nationwide. You will get to work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer that you may contact with. And True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster, better buying experience when they contact a True Car Certified Dealer. And on average, you can expect to save over $3,000 off MSRP. Once you register, you'll see a real price on actual inventory. Hook up with that True Car certified dealer. Have a better buying experience. True Car, go to the truecar.com or True Car app. Do what I'm telling you. How much do you think uh, this is a, a, a factor of the way the technology has developed? So you take a Twitter and 140 characters. Can you do anything besides call somebody a name in 140 characters? Well, we're going to have 250 or something. What is it, Chris, Gary? Oh, we're that'll gonna, change the world, yeah, right? We're going to have 250. Is that what's coming? Something. I don't know what the number is, but it's going to be a bunch more. Yeah, I, I just uh, – I, I blame our educational system so much because – it just feels like people are talking about things that feel a certain way or they believe is a certain thing but aren't willing to look at it or spend the time really accumulating sufficient knowledge to make a judgment. So judgment doesn't really even exist. It makes you think, you know, I, I was talking about education um, not that long ago with somebody and we were trying to figure out, you know, if you, if you could reform it magically. And the way the ancient Greeks did it is so, um, at least during the time period that, that is often Three, quoted. Over 300. Well, oh, you'd, have, you'd, have like, um, you'd have like one august professor who'd take eight or nine people and that would be they'd show you around they'd take you places they'd do things they'd, yeah. they'd ask probing questions but the point was is that there was no way to escape that environment by faking it by not do, i mean by the time you got out of there you could talk to that professor on equal terms and it's like the old uh, line from kung fu by the time you could grab the pebble out of his hand it was time to go you know yeah right and and uh, you know it was never meant to be in a mass level or sort of churned out. It's it's a very personal kind of a thing. You know, very. I, I you know how many students can a teacher effectively? That's right. And th- and this is as we all know the one we have now is a more than century system. A long time ago to create people that could work on the assembly line, and I mean in a way it becomes like all systems calcified so that even though the original goal of the system isn't really what we need to do anymore, it's really hard to do big change. Mm-hmm. You can do tweaking and we can move incrementally forward. But if you said, listen, we should have done this every year for the last hundred years, so we're way behind. We got to do late. a lot now. Yeah. It's it's a calcified system that would be very difficult, including through unions and parents and everything you can think of, there'd be so much pushback. Well let's go back to founding fathers because it, it reminds the educational deficiency reminds me that when I was watching the play Hamilton, I thought, oh, my God, this is what most people are going to think is history. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's good. I'd rather they have that than nothing. Yeah, more than they have. Yeah, right. but it was like, oh, that first act. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of what happened. <laughs> but, but back to Jefferson and, and our founding fathers. So is Jefferson your main sort of focus? Do you like p- thinking and paying attention to him? Or? Well, it depends. I mean, I, listen, <laughs> there are things that I look at that blow my mind sometimes. You mentioned the educational system. Yeah. When you realize that James Madison, and if you go read James Madison, he'll just blow you away, but yeah. he's like 23 When he's something. writing the stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can't even get your mind around somebody yeah. who's that well-educated, that articulate, that smart, yeah. and 23. Yeah. Because you don't even know if you're today, how do you, how do you get in a position like that where anybody's reading your stuff at 23 even, you right. know? Um, they are, they're fabulously interesting human beings, and their education is fabulously important and incredible. And, and the fact that what they did is still lasting, even in a placeholder sense in the modern world, is crazy. They um, – and I, you know, I, I 
had a little insight into that. Uh, I was in England, London the other day, and I thought to myself, oh, that's why we were able to produce guys like that. We, we had a British system. It was all very British education, British culture, British institution, British government, and they worked. And they worked. And these, these extraordinary people were able to take advantage of that. You have to remind people, too, that all these people who founded this country, the main guys were all British citizens oh, they, whose history was British, who's, who, who remembered the glorious revolution in the 17th century before this one, the rights of Englishmen. They fought these, for the British. You know, oh, absolutely. Most of them. And the French, oh, it, it, French was, and Indian Wars. We yeah. call the French and Indian War. It was what? the 15, part of the Seven Years' yeah, War. Yeah, it was a French war. And it was a world war. It was a world war essentially, and our piece was the sort of Canada Indian part. That's right. And uh, our, you know, we our people fought on that as British. I don't. I don't think they ever really initially intended to uh, break off. I, I don't re- think. They, no, I, don't. I think. I think it was a decision they didn't want to make. Well, I, I and I think they were forced to because they would have been hung. They would have been killed if they had. You know, with, given the position they took, as what was it that Benjamin Franklin said, "Gentlemen, we better hang together because if we do not, we'll, hang separately. Like, we'll all hang separately." How much? And you wonder how much the fact that the the King of of Britain at the time had a disease that made him essentially yeah. nuts some of the you time. Wonder, yeah. yeah, how much that played into you it? Wonder. Because had you had a, a more forward thinking guy in that position, might. But he had plenty of people's administration that were kind of forward. Yeah, Lord but, North and all those. Yeah, people, but no yeah. one listened to them. Uh, but it, again, getting back to that, it, it makes me worried about. The world we're in. I, I don't know why that. I think that's always a good position to have to be worried about the world we're well, in. Well, but at that particular period of history of what I would call what they call tyranny, I feel like our government is sort of on a tyrannical tear right now, and and I'm surprised that you know the thing we fought revolutions for and civil wars for, no one understands that all that has been relinquished to so much bureaucracy and involvement and up our ass with everything. You know, as Adam always says, if if, uh, the founding fathers could see just him having to get a building permit from the city, they'd shit themselves. You know, they'd they'd vomit right there in the city hall. We have loopholed uh, our protections pretty effectively. I mean, and and someone said to me once, I remember years ago, because I used to scream on the radio about this. We're losing our rights. We're losing. And they would say, would you please list the amendments that have been repealed and all these kinds of things? And it's not that simple. Were were you saying we're losing our rights? Yes. Yes. And they were saying, would you please diagram when the Fourth Amendment was taken? Can back or, yeah. and, you, and you have to say it doesn't work that way because if you look at how what would be required to do that two thirds of the state legislature, everything to, to change an amendment, they just create uh, as one Supreme Court justice had said when he did it that the that the Constitution is not a suicide pact, but that that opens up the door because once you loophole it, these are supposed to be basically lines in the sand. Well, I think though what we have done, riddle me this. You tell me if this is right, and I don't know. I may not to know. know either. But it's very simple. It's construct in my head is that we've been so preoccupied with rights and so busy in the loopholes around rights and individual rights and this right and that right and every every little sort of hair-splitting right that we've lost freedom. That freedom has been. Did you com- go look up this book I wrote a long time ago? Oh, is this your book? I, I just years ago I wrote something, and, and the subtitle was "More Rights and Less Liberty." We're there, yeah. but we are real. But I'm only saying it because I'm living it, and, yeah. and I and that's the thing that. And I'm looking at the millennials and the kids behind them, and they don't really seem concerned about freedom and liberty, or understand that that really was the fundamental principle we were sort of getting into here in this country. It was live free. Well, and, and you do wonder about that. I mean, you, you sit there and go, you know, um, that's and that's my problem I, with. I think with, that's 
why we have Trump. I think I think it's I think it's a freedom move. They put a murder weapon in Washington or a wrecking ball. I really think that's what they were. I just I wish one side were more interested in that kind of stuff because I could gravitate that. Doesn't way. it feel like there's sort of a libertarian coalescence in the middle? Sort of people. I hear a lot of people using that word. They don't mean it. I think it's marketing but, more because I think if you, I mean, first of all, the president, uh, and this this doesn't make him any different than the other presidents, but they don't exactly scream a lot about your constitutional rights unless there's yeah. you know a hot if if there's gun violence and they want to make sure nothing gets touched, then they'll bring up the Second Amendment. But otherwise, you don't hear. I mean, when was the last time in the age of terrorism any? Anybody talked about the Fourth Amendment, one of the most important rights to protect yourself from the government. But if you asked Americans today, and I think this is perhaps part of the problem, if you'd said right after 9-11, listen, um, yeah. we're going to really have a vulnerability if you insist on this Fourth Amendment, and a lot of Americans would have said, fine. Yeah. You know, I got, the old line that my, uh, my friend's dad always said, we call it the auto principle, he said, I had nothing to hide. Okay, that's a really bad reason to give up a right, though. Yeah. You know, I got nothing to hide. Well, you don't know what they're looking for. Yeah. And you don't know what they might be looking for next week, you know, and, and you don't know what they might find that they planted on you. I mean, you can go down the road a million times. But but James Madison did not include something like a Fourth Amendment because he was hoping to get criminals off, you know? he Madison, as I understand it, didn't feel that rights were that important in, in a lot of his constitutional arguments initially. He felt that the that the rights were not worth the paper they were written on because they, the Constitution already promised all that. They didn't need to be specified. And then he wrote the Bill of Rights. Little did he know it needed to be much more specified <laughs> than it even funny? was. That's a weird little wrinkle of history I heard the other day. Maybe you say I may have heard you say it. Well, I'm, but if you believe – see, I couldn't get that. If you believe as they did, they were in an age of enlightenment and rational yeah, thought. Yeah. I mean there, there was a lot of pie in the enlightenment sky. Enlightenment is under told, attack right now. Yeah. Very yeah, I think so. But go ahead. Pie in no, the sky. no, no. But, but, but I mean uh, so you could make assumptions like, well, people would never – you know, I mean for example, one of the assumptions they made was that the various branches of government would not end up ceding their authority to the other branches because people are naturally protective of rights. Well, except that if it turns out that the Congress can avoid any hard decisions like actually putting their John Hancock on a war declaration and instead say something like, well, we'll give him an authorization. And then when the war turns out well, say we were for it all the time when the war turns out. So, I mean, I think maybe there's craven human emotions and elements that maybe they didn't take into account with their high-minded thinking. You've got to remember the (laughs) – the way they practiced politics then was so different. It's pretty bare knuckled. Was bare knuckled, but you didn't you didn't speak for yourself. It, 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 everything was by representation. Everything you you were always one. You know, you'd go out and talk and tell your position. But when it came to delegations and whatnot, and the the nominations, everyone would be doing it. You on didn't your even behalf. have direct. You didn't even have direct election of senators. No, everything. Everything was back a couple, at least one or two steps. And and I think the fact that it's now directly to the people, for the most part, creates all this kind of preoccupation with politics. I would be very interested, and I've talked about this a lot, but I'd be very interested to to wonder how much the two parties have been a problem in this because I feel like – In this being? Well, the decline of all the things you just mentioned, yeah. right? Um, where, where all of these things that I grew up – you know, I, I tell my wife all the time when I go to these patriotic gatherings, whether it's a ball game or whatever, and, and they start doing uh, uh, the national anthem, I, I feel like it's mocking a little bit mm. uh, because the marketing of the United States' values is as strong as ever. Mm-hmm. But if you actually like drill down and try to live up to some of that stuff, it seems a little hollow to me. Um, And I am a patriot in the old sense of the word, right? I mean, those things actually mean something to me. Uh, Everybody says they mean something to them. But then when you get Socratic and start breaking things down on on – well, would you really be in favor of allowing another 9-11 in order to – people get, you know, different. 
I guess you could say. And I'm, I'm not sure that either the what passes for the left and what passes for the right in this country would agree with someone like me uh, that you should have all those things. I mean, the left might say you're for hate speech if you want freedom of speech. And, and the right would talk about perhaps Confederate monuments in our history and all that. And I don't fit into either one of those categories. And, and I wonder if... I wonder if it was like the – and I hate this because I am a Jeffersonian, which is a more direct democracy kind of an idea. But I wonder how people would feel um, if you could literally just sit down and hash this out in long-form conversations like a constitutional convention. But we got a whole generation that won't even read a wall of text if it's a page long. No, won't, or won't allow you to speak, let alone have discourse. I don't understand that. I don't, I don't know. And, and, how, and how, how do, do you, we get that way? How do you how do you build your thinking except through discourse? I mean, some sort of Socratic dialogue. Well, I, don't you remember? We're old enough to remember that that um, you know. I always I, I was I was trying to explain how, why Milo should be allowed to speak at yeah, Berkeley. Sure. And I was explaining that people, you know, sixty minutes used to almost like every year have like a grand dragon from the KKK on or something, uh-huh. and they give him you know a bunch of airtime, and Mike Wallace would ask all these 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 Let deep, him hang himself. Yeah, yeah. He, and every yeah. single time you said, "Wow, that guy's." an idiot, yes, right? Yeah, and it, yes. did, it served its purpose. Yes. So in other words, these people that are afraid that what it's really going to do is create a bunch of people who are sympathetic to that, well, not unless they're idiots too, I guess. You've seen this thing in Canada, that's C16, I think it's called, the preferred gender pronoun rule, where if you don't hit one of the 170 preferred gender pronouns, you're guilty of hate speech. It's just going to eat itself. I think that's right. Yeah. That, that, that's exa- but I have a feeling that the sort of postmodernist and neo-Marxist want that. They want to encumber things in a web that sort of breaks things down. So power can be usurped, you know, in novel ways. Well, I mean, look, there's parts of it I get where if you, if you say something like, listen, white males like us have been running the show exclusively for a very long time and that should change. I will sit there and go, well, you know what? That probably should change. But now mm-hmm. what does that mean? Do we have to become – You have to be do, oppressed. Well, yeah. Do you, do you switch it? Yes. Do you simply, yes see, you have to be oppressed. Yeah. And, I, see, and for many hundreds of years. Well, and I, w- I would suggest that that's the kind of thing that, that when people push that, it ends up creating the sort of pendulum swinging you see now. Of course, um, That if you – you know, it's – That's not equality, aren't we? Are we fighting for equality or not? Well, and if the goal was, as Martin Luther King says, a society where you judge people, for example, if we're talking race specifically by, the, by the, uh, their character instead. Yeah. And, well, how do you get there? I mean, how do you get there if, if everyone is so invested in this tribalistic stuff? Well, that, it becomes about power only then. And almost a totem. I mean, this is who we are, right? Who are you? Well, I'm this race. I'm, I'm this generation. Uh, you know, I like this music. And you become sectionalized into, into different totem groups. It doesn't sound appealing. Well, not to us. Yeah. We, may, we may be the wrong people. Uh, that's something I wanted to ask you about. I'm blanking on it right now. But what come, occurs to mind is all the the sexual allegations that are going on right now, which is sort of, I wondered if we're the only culture right now really going through this the way we are. Are other countries, or, I think, are I, we I, more I, egregious I, with I don't it? know the answer to that. I will yeah. say as, as, the, as the father of two daughters, yeah. uh, both of whom would love to go into that same business. Um, my dad was a film producer, and my sister wanted to go uh, into that for a while. And my father said no, because he knew what happened, because some of those people were probably his, his cohorts and whatnot. I think that something like this, it's been going on since the beginning of Hollywood. I mean, the, the old 1920s scandals, I mean, they're very similar to what you run into today. They weren't sexual harassment. They were legitimate, like, 
you know, awful stories. But I mean, it's 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 almost like Hollywood and entertainment has drawn people of that ilk forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look at this as maybe an important corrective. I, I have our doubts that we can stop there. We have this tendency. The, the, by to the way, over. the politics has attracted a similar group, mm, maybe, and so and it needs a corrective also. Well, look, look, I mean, this does need a corrective. Yeah. Now the question is: Is are we capable of correctives without going overboard? Well, that's the that's the hard, hard part I'm struggling with, which is is where does it stop? I yeah. Mean, do we? Does every artist that has misbehaved and been misogynistic or engaged in domestic violence or exploitation of women need work need to be expunged from the historical record? Picasso's going first, man. <laughs> He's out. Well, I out. mean, you, you almost you almost want to say that um, if you wanted to do this fairly, you almost want to start over. Okay, from here on in, these yeah. are, um, I, you know, I, I have a hard time doing that because I feel like, like many other people do, you just feel like some of these people are such scumbags that they're not they're not deserving of your sympathy or understanding or whatever. But in the same way that I defend the rights, it's not about the scumbags, right? It's about the other people. It's about any of us falling into that. I mean, look. We can talk about the – isn't this the, um, the modern-day equivalent you could have of somebody planting evidence on you? I mean – Isn't what? what well, the, oh, Har- Har- Harvey, yeah, but Harvey Weinstein's – I mean there, there's little doubt about that. Yeah. But I mean what happens if somebody down the road becomes – I mean what, what – Well, it's, it's similar to calling somebody a racist, right? Yeah, allegations you, you can, become you difficult. Can, you can put some but, – you know, but maybe they have some little you – know, let's say they have some misbehavior or some insensitivities or – Somewhere 30 years ago, they did something they shouldn't – they really weren't thinking or whatever. Would we hold that person accountable for that? I, I, think, you bre- I think you've got to break it down to what we're talking about. So if you're talking about somebody who 30 years ago was molesting children – Then uh, no go. Th- that's right. Yeah. And if you're talking about somebody 30 years ago that was pinching the rear end of his secretary, maybe we can say, OK, uh, times have changed. <laughs> I don't think that – I saw some stuff again, George H.W. Bush today, some allegations from 1992 that were like he needs off with his head. Off with his head. Yeah, I don't know what to, <laughs> you don't know what to do about that because it's 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 something that. And by the way, it was specifically touching someone's ass during a picture. You, That's what it was. You can you can argue uh, that he may not even be the. I mean, obviously, he had a recent uh, occasion where somebody said he did the same thing. Well, but ninety year olds do that. That's just what they is do. Ninety year olds do that. Oh, ninety year old males grab 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 grab. They're <laughs> hypersexual. They're inappropriate. If if you if we're going to start incarcerating nine year old men who do this, you're going to have to clear out the nursing homes and have no women ever go into a nursing home either. Because that's what they do. But I do think um, that, that to, to boil this down and wrap it up with a nice bow, you know, we're, we're involved in things that should be done. Hollywood yes, has been, has been a problem. Right. Yes, I agree with you. It's, so, it's good change. Yeah, but good you, change. you'd love to figure out how you put like a, a stop gap in there. So well, right. Should, it's, yeah. And so what I'm getting at is it's the mob part of it that's the bad part. It's that it just – the mob okay. just starts so, going So ima- let's imagine it differently, yeah. right? This, yeah. is, this is what they used to teach you to do in school, right? OK, so let's imagine an alternative outcome because we're dealing with human beings here yeah. and we have a tendency to be who we are, yeah, whether yeah. it's going over. So in a perfect world, how, what would a stop gap be like? To me, it would be – and I've started to do this on the radio – is let's really examine what women are experiencing. Let's get – because men clearly – I've been learning about it. I, I didn't – I wasn't aware of the, some of the nuances of this and now I'm getting it. Let's dig in deep where the lines are. Where you know, where is it you know, where outside of the workplace, where in the workplace. Today we did a whole thing on women who giggle after – laugh and men who say ter- terribly inappropriate things. And I've been aware of this for a long time. I've got a part of the radio that does that. And I keep saying, don't laugh at him. Don't laugh. You laugh at him. He's telling him to do it again. And I had a long talk with my wife. She goes, oh, this is just nervous laughter. Inside, we're, we're dying. 
Well, we don't know that. See, we have to like you have to step up and go. No, I'm sorry. That that, that makes me uncomfortable. After you laugh, fine, laugh. But then afterwards, go. That was nervous laughter. This made me uncomfortable. Men don't know that. Unfortunately, we don't. But we will if you if we really get get this all clarified. By the same token, we need to get men to focus and be empathic and pay attention and realize that somebody's experiencing something maybe different than we were reared to understand, which is that men and women are exactly the same, which they are not, which is – I don't know if you were suckled at that tit, but tit, we were, that every men and women are exactly the same, exactly the same. The only thing that makes them different is some social constructs, but otherwise, yeah, exactly, unless you're gay, then it's all biological. Then it's all biological. So, but, but the point is there's differences in these experiences, and we need to educate young people about that. And in the meantime, where people are transgressing, we need something like due process, something – not where you know, like where Louis Louis C.K. does something inappropriate, and everything he's touched has to be hands off. Every person near him has to be abandoned ship immediately, and for fear of liability. You know what's Is crazy that- though, because because here we are. I remember being at KBC here in town in the in the late eighties, early nineties, yeah. and even then. There were like uh, not workshops, but but uh, tutorials yes. and seminars yeah. on this stuff. So theoretically, we've got twenty five, thirty years of well, trying. The data's in. That stuff doesn't work. Yeah, well, that, that, that <laughs> was where I was leading to yeah. is that what have we been doing wrong? Well, that that's not that that kind of uh, institutionalized, perfunctory, bureaucratic bullshit. That's, it's like trying to teach kids don't do drugs, right? That it doesn't work. It does not. Work. So what's the so so what if then then in thirty years of doing this mm-hmm. and, and obviously we all understand how bureaucracies work and the incentivization and there are people who've been running these same programs since nineteen ninety two and they know what to satisfy yeah, yeah, some bureaucratic yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and they make money off yeah, of it or whatever right. but but theoretically then there's something better that we could have been either been using or we could develop that is supposed to take human beings from the high school version where people do this all the time and it's impossible to stop. Where they abuse each other. Where yeah, yeah. Where they, and it's all sexual and, and then moves it to a point where now we're in the business world and this is not okay anymore. It's a difficult switch to turn off and on, but maybe you call it a rite of passage from you know the, the world of, uh, of childhood, adolescence and education and all that to something where, okay, we're all professionals now and we treat each other that way. I, I think it's it's a more you're right it's a more mature conversation not you know watching videos about somebody doing some cartoon-esque sexual right. misconduct right, right. it's about really talking about well it's, you know what we're we're you're, we're consistently heading towards the issue of character you and I it's character development ultimately it's like being a, of a certain character dressing a certain way carrying yourself a certain way conduct towards other people in a certain way it's just golden rule stuff I mean, it's not that hard uh, right. It's well, true. I, I'm going to I'm going to wrap it in together with something we talked about when we talked about public executions yeah. and people. The reason that that started to change was the, because the executions. Yeah, we're well, back well, in France now. The, the 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 desire to go see them yes. began to fall out of favor, but because the elite class began, and what I've been reading suggests that it, it started with women. That, they used that, to go, yeah. Yeah, and that the fact that they used to enjoy it so much began to be something that the men who also enjoyed it found repulsive. Not that they enjoyed it, but that the women were having. And so it began the upper classes were the first ones to go, okay, this is really a lower class thing to enjoy watching other people suffer. And, and so eventually it became something to be frowned upon as lower class and, and part of the mob, as you would say. And so 
you know, when I was growing up, they used to believe sensibilities had changed around the Enlightenment period. I, I, I worry. The only thing I worry about in terms of your theory is that they may have killed off everybody else who didn't have a rational sort of character about them. But okay. Well, and, and again, if, if it changes one way, it can change the other. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. And, uh, well, what I always like to say oh. is that is that is that did it really fall out of fashion? I mean, are we really doing comparisons? Is anybody showing you uh, actual uh, uh, terrible, violent executions and seeing now? that people like them? Well, for ratings. Do you well, like how, – how would we know? We're not experimenting. Well, people look at awful, horrible stuff on, on the internet. But I would argue that – for some reason, Brian Williams to me was one that really bothered me. I mean the, so the guy – The NBC lied. anchor? Yeah, yeah. So he lied and he has to lose his job because he like over-exaggerated over something? I think for he, a news reporter, it, the credibility I, thing plays into differently. differently. That's up to his employer. The, the, but the mob had to go and go and go until until something happened. And that that's like – Maybe you call that viewers, though. Well, if you're the employer, again, you, you're worried. But then these, look at your numbers. Are the numbers falling? Or they maybe they probably went up, knowing the way viewers are. <laughs> that would be interesting, yeah, yeah. right? And, and so I, I just don't like the judge and jury of a mob. You know, they, they say the reason. Who, and who does? I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out. Is there? Is there? Um, I think people are really invested in being part of the, their voice being heard. It's funny because it, it seems to me that that no one in the mob approves of the mob, but they don't think they're the mob. You know, I I'm mean, not sure that's true. I think people are really gratified by by part of the mob and feel like they are sort of social justice warriors by participating in these in these outrages. Well, and here's the problem with that. Too, and now Al Franken's caught in the net today. Yeah. And oh, oops, he should have known better. If I'm knew, just saying. Yeah. Well, here's the here's if the you thing. Knew Leanne, you mean <laughs> here's the thing with the social justice warrior though that's difficult because if you wanted to say that the people in the 60s who really did change Jim Crow and whatever yes. were social justice. So where is the line between Well, let me you tell could, you because okay, I'm acutely aware of this. Okay, good. Because every uh, – to me, no better demonstrate way of describing this than looking at demonstrations right now. Demonstrations in the 60s. I talked to an old-timer who used to put together demonstrations a couple of weeks ago and he said we had one – two rules, nonviolence, specific object, specific goal for our demonstration – out of Vietnam now, civil rights now, and policy. And here's, our, here's our recommendation right here. Not, hey, man, I need my voice to be heard. I'm going to Washington so you can hear my voice. What, what do you want to say? I just need to be heard. I need to resist. What is that? That's nothing. It's a waste of time, a waste of resources, as opposed to this government is unjust, needs to get out of Vietnam right now. Right now, we are going to keep demonstrating until they get out of Vietnam. Could we need be, a civil rights could policy Could he be romanticizing now. it? Because I they are romanticizing yeah. it. No, no, he know. Yeah, I remember them. Do you remember? How- oh, sure. Well, I, I remember one of my uh, one of my uh, older brother's friends were saying that uh, listen, it was a great great way to meet chicks. You go to these demonstrations. Oh, well, they're well, college okay, kids. Okay, but, okay, but this is my. This <laughs> well, listen, I think women drive a lot of this stuff anyway, because then the men kind of come along. To be well, with them. well, it's. I think it's the difference between. Um, there are because I used to I protested in the eighties myself various uh, Central American policies and whatnot specific policy yeah, but, 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 but some of that was raising awareness right I remember demonstrating against apartheid uh, South, South Africa uh, we yeah, did that I never heard of apartheid no. and I was like geez I got to demonstrate with this but I remember arguments between what I used to call the pragmatists and 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 the non pragmatists and and the difference was what you you said effectiveness right if you want to why are but, we doing this well, but yeah. in the sixties you had the same thing with the the uh, the D- disagreements in some of the counterculture over we need to cut our hair and put on a bunch of suits and ties because it will change the way we're perceived and a bunch of people who said I'm not going to do that but I'm right. still so it was the difference between this is what's going to be most effective yeah. versus this is a bit of street theater and it's a whole lot more fun to do street theater I tend to believe that we're more alike other generations than we think and I bet 
without proof that that generation had a, the 60s now. Yes, a core of people that were as driven and committed as you can imagine in yes. every way you just mentioned. No, I, I understand okay, what you're and, saying. And, I don't and a disagree. large group around them that are the followers I, and it was hip com- and cool. I completely and, you know. agree. But, but the point being is that the demonstrations today are romanticized versions strictly. They're the, there's without the core of somebody trying to make a specific change because I just cannot – when you – I can't figure out what – any of them are trying to do. Well, that's my problem. I can't talk to them um, because we can't – you know, Jonah Goldberg had a column. He's a straight-up, up-and-down establishment conservative. But he had a column recently where he was saying it's no fun to even have political conversations anymore because they never get past, I don't believe your sources, you don't believe my sources, and yeah. we're going to start calling each other names because it doesn't get any farther than that. Yeah. When we were younger, you could have real political discussions yes. and they were stimulating. Yes. And, and I, as a, you know, a scientist, a clinician stuff myself, I – I've gotten to the point where I don't know what's best or right or what should or shouldn't happen. It's too, it's too complicated. <laughs> I know what I think, perhaps, and I know I've got issues. You know, I can evaluate things and listen and look at things and sort of see where I have concerns, like mob behavior and things like that. But in terms of, you know, is Donald Trump the end of the world? I don't know. Teddy Roosevelt was the same guy. We I mean, get right down to it, smarter version, but same guy, narcissist. Had a lot of problems high, with Teddy Roosevelt high, personally, just so you know. <laughs> oh, good. Well, he was he was a nut job, right? I mean, complete nut job. In a lot of I, ways. I, yeah. I, I liked him. I, I thought he was. I, I love. Well, at least I love the um, Edmund Morris book about him. That's what I love. It's probably. If you think of, the Spanish American War was the beginning of going down a wrong path, then I do. I do too. I think. I think. And and if every time we don't finish a war, I go look at the Spanish American War. Same thing. We we lost our. We didn't, we, it was a bad idea in the first place. It was concocted around the, uh, the main, which is, was, was a, a boiler that blew up, wasn't even terrorism. And we left behind Cuba. Cuba, good job. And, and we got and stuck in the, an insurgency in the Philippines in the, and screwed for the years. Philippines yeah. up for, for, to this day. Yeah, to this day. Uh, and, and I kept looking at some of the – well, Afghanistan, for instance. Like, well, you don't finish it, you're going to get Cuba. That's what you're going to get. Well, and sometimes you can't – how do you finish Afghanistan? I, I know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't, if you I, have that answer, the point is I don't, know. Who I, know. I don't It's way too complicated for me. Who should be president? What's the good for us? Bad for us? It's too complicated. But here's the problem: even the specialists. It's too, so if you go to the if you go to the military heads in Afghanistan, they'll tell you maybe how to fight the war in Afghanistan. But then they're lacking in the same way we talked about General Sherman needing oh, yeah. all. The, they're lacking other things like the political dimensions that might be helpful. And everything. it's going to require groups of people from different specialties. But then that requires us to be able to sit down and have these conversations you're talking about, which we can't. And of course, we don't have the resources to do the things, these things either. That's that's the other part. We we sort of think of ourselves as limitless resources in this country. We just don't have. I it. had an interesting conversation with a European when I mentioned. You know, my, my everybody calls um, people who don't want to be as involved in in foreign affairs as we are now an isolationist. Yeah. And I always say. If you want to have a foreign policy like 98% of the countries in the world, that would be called isolationist by our standards because we're yeah. viewing it from so far in one direction. Um, but, I mean, I think, I think you look at this and you say to yourself, okay, uh, I, said, I said that we should get out of some of the countries we're in. We should pare down the mission. And the Europeans – I had a friend who said, how could you do that? So we depend on you. Oh he, said, he said, you're keeping the peace of the world. And if you oh. came – well, but I said to him, I said, yeah, but we got to be able to actually do that. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't do any good for us to pretend we're going to try and then fail. Or, or, or to be uh, give the image that we could magically do it forever well, just you, because. It's, it's a marathon and you'll run out of gas. Oh, um, what was your problem with Roosevelt? Uh, 
Teddy or yeah, Franklin? Teddy. Teddy. Um, well, Franklin is easy to My problem with Teddy Roosevelt is, and I'm going to use a very loaded word, but it applies. And he was an imperialist in the old oh, sense of the big word. Time. Yes, and he, th- but but he he was an imperialist because he thought that's what great countries did, and he was looking at other great countries and saying, well, if you're going to be great, yeah. you got to do what they I, do. I would even argue he would say, hey, it's my great country, it's me that he, he's in, a, in my. Well, he would say I'm great great with. peoples do. Well, he was also a product of his day. Yes. If you go read the history books from that time period, they all sound like Teddy they Roosevelt do. wrote them. God, when he, his descriptions of. Uh, uh, what was the hill that he climbed? Oh, San Juan. It was really hill. kettled, but they say, yes, yeah, San Juan. Yeah, he would just go, oh, poor, poor, poor guy next to me was cut in half. Poor guy next to me, ah, the shrapnel got him. Too bad. Anyway, of course, they weren't going to get me. I moved on. It, like zero sense. Oh, I had a grandfather own. like him. He's an adrenaline junkie. Well, that's a, we call that an alcoholic. But, <laughs> so, so, but, but I don't think Teddy was an alcoholic. I think he was just so grandiose and so manic and so narcissistic. Well, no, just, remember, he grew up as an asthmatic child who was yep. always, you know, if you wanted to do a psychological profile there and said there was some overcompensating. Yep, yeah. yep over, way overcompensating. And, and just, oh, he, he was a nut. And he was friends with all those, the, the, the uh, Cabot Lodges and yes. all those uh, Brahmin Americans. Well, but, but he was, the one thing he was that, that no one could take away from him, he was brilliant. He was super oh, yeah. brilliant. I mean, like yeah. crazy brilliant. And had a kind of a weird judgment. I mean, stuff he did as the commissioner of police in New York yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. He, had, he, had, he made some interesting moves, bringing the press into his office, the first person to sort of do that and sort of friendlying up to them and just, just some really super crazy, instinctively smart things. There's some wonderful – in a horrific way, which is always how I look at it, wonderfully horrific. But I remember thinking that Roosevelt had this weird – yeah, yeah, had this weird um, – not ironic because that's not the right word, but you know he was so for going into the wars, right? In the oh, First yeah. World War, he was all over President Wilson for not, you know, being more aggressive. And, and so Roosevelt's uh, kids went into the war, and he lost a son, um, mm-hmm. shot down by the Germans. All his kids were screwed up. Yeah. Well, one committed suicide, alcoholic. Yeah, there were problems. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. But well, l- listen, the guy was bigger than life. That's hard to live up to anyway. Yeah. Especially, well, living up to is one thing, but he also was completely abandoning his kids and and, and probably abusive. In well, some way. but you know, as I do, that in that period. That's how they did it. Border, yeah. well, we boarding school. Well, but and now we're coming around full circle. We are to the demol- to, to, to law stuff. Well, yeah. to what I yeah to what I was saying, which was that I think some of the abusive practices against children uh, towards children in pre-revolutionary France are very similar to what our family systems have done today. And we've been through an epidemic of all kinds of abuse on the heels of the 60s and 70s where, hey, man, whatever you're into, you know, little kids, they're just little adults. They'll raise themselves. And, hey, if you're into having sex with kids, that's what you're into. Who are, you, who are we going to you – know, I mean there was a period where that kind of shit was going on. And, uh, and we now have a group of people that are um, hurt and angry, and I don't blame them. But they're getting together in these mobs, and that's the, that's the liability. And mobs have to have an object of their aggression or they eat each other. It would be interesting to just be an observer and not be so caught up in this where we could say, I wonder how this is going to turn out. Yeah, you know? we're and, just watching a TV um, show or something. Well, I mean, you know, you talked about cycles earlier. It would be interesting uh, to find out if basically uh, this generation I – Well, mean, that's that cycle. But do you find the name of that book for me? The, the fifth cycle or something? Fifth cycle of discipline? Is that no, it? No, no. God darn it. What else do you know about it? it, it it's, fifth cycle. There's a lot of fifth cycles. Oh, no. It's, it's a fifth. Uh, <laughs> well, but the idea of generation well, this is, doing this, that this is, is old. Well, this book gets into yes. that. Yeah, but, yeah. It, but it really specifies some of the character issues and the things that typically statistically happen to these particular groupings of personality profiles in different generations. Do you and, think we're doing – I mean when you think about learning, right? Are we learning to, to raise our kids better? Do you think we are? 
Are we learning I, to I, raise see, I, our kids? Sure. Better? If you say, if you say uh, were the people in the Middle Ages uh, so weird and so horrific in that era because the, the the child rearing practices, can you say today that we've improved upon yes. that? Okay. We generally we're becoming less violent and and more educated and smarter. Is that a regional variation? I no, mean, no, that's a that's a global. Stephen Pinker, you familiar with his stuff? Yeah, yeah. that's a global trend. That's a, and, it, and it's rather pronounced. Um, but within it, there's all kinds of micro. Well, then you ask. Cycles. Does, does, okay, so so if we have that, does that actually then transfer into better things? Right. In other words, on an individual level, this person's life is better because they weren't traumatized. But on a societal level, are a bunch of people raised better? Does that equal a better society? Well, it, it depends on the historical context, right? That's if a good we, answer. If we were fighting a war, good answer. We need to not be so kind and gentle and, and empathic. We need to be more like the Aztecs, and that's why they prevailed everywhere. They had these warrior kids that they. Beat the shit out of. Maybe it depends on the war, though, because sometimes sure. – dep- So like in this war on terror, I would suggest that if you went all World War II, uh, it, would, it would backfire, right? Because it's a hearts and minds conflict, I think, like Vietnam was. Everybody always said, well, why don't you just go you know, carpet bomb the place and nuke it, turn it into glass, and war's over. Well, because we were in part of a larger Cold War where everyone was watching how you behaved and how well your conduct in that war matched your rhetoric and all yeah. these things. Yeah. So, I mean, you can go kill a lot of terrorists, but if you kill a lot of innocent people at the same time, right. you create more terrorists. So it's a little different than defeating the Nazis in the Second World yeah, War, oh, for example. It, it's almost like uh, – it's almost a police action. It's a giant guerrilla war. Yeah, it's yeah. like – yeah. Uh, I'm I. One of the things that I'm again I'm I'm pimping you about history a little bit. Thank you. The 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 other period that now we're now bleeding into is you know how Rome eventually disappeared and and I think it's some of these same issues that they lost a cultural identity they lost a willfulness they sort of are we talking about the Republic or the Empire. The republic, the, the empire has already sort of decay. They they lost a will to sustain that, and probably that was a good thing. But but what really f- the final sort of when they what was it uh, was it uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire where you talked about the hordes coming in across a frozen yeah, Edward river? Gibbon, and yeah, stuff. That, that, yeah, that's the empire. Yeah, uh, but but it was more than that. I think it was just a, just a sort of a devol- devolution, probably by something like what we think of as terrorist groups today, just an infiltration and a, a hearts and mind thing. I don't look at – and this just may be me. I don't look at the <coughs> empire as all that um, comparable. But when you look at the republic – and I just had this conversation with somebody recently too. Mm-hmm. And you have to make like 10,000 disclaimers and say, well, everything is different. But there are some human elements yes, in there. we're still and, humans. And systemic things, yeah. right? So any any – powerful commercial republic in history, and there's not a lot of them, uh-huh. is going to have broad dynamics that remind you of our time now because uh-huh. we are a powerful commercial republic that's also an empire. Um, when you look at things like though the corruption of Roman politics, for example, oh boy, does that look like our stuff, right? right? Also, and I, not everybody talks about this. This is more of a, of a me thing. But you know, one of the really weird things about the Roman uh, descent into empire was nobody ever announced that that happened. That there was an empire? Yeah, yeah that, that they weren't continuing just like they did before. So, for example, you can be into the second and third Roman emperors, but they're still electing senators. And the senators are still taking money for bribes. And it's, uh, in other words, the forms remained comfortable and the same, but the government had, had changed entirely. So it's the same thing we were talking about, about how I feel a little bit ripped off when we're doing national anthems and all this, because I hear all this talk about freedom and I want it, right? And I feel like 
Okay. I want us to yeah. be about that. The forms are the same, right? So so the flag, people go crazy over the flag, and that's great, but the flag is a symbol, right? Yeah. It's the things that the flag symbolizes that we're just blasé about allowing to go to hell in a handbasket. That's right. But the flag's still important. So you say to yourself, okay, so if we became an empire in 100 years with no freedoms at all, would we still show the same devotion to the flag? Is the, is, is the actual um, uh, piece of fabric what we're in, what's important there? Or is it what it stands for? And if it's what it stands for... You better know what that is. That's what's changed. Yeah, we don't know what that is. No, but we'll, if we freaked out as much over the, the actual things as the forms, we'd be in better shape. Uh, my friend Ami Horowitz went out and uh, went to Berkeley last week and waved an American flag in the uh, main quad and started, you know, greatest country on earth, America, and just was abused. He, he taped the whole thing. People, screw you. It's horrible. How dare you? Fuck you. This is the worst country on earth. Then he, the next day, went out with an ISIS flag, and he got, good on you, man. I'm behind you. Well really? Done. Absolutely. He did the An same ISIS thing. ISIS flag and he ISIS got ISIS flag. You should see the video. I, I would love on. to have Abby some. Inter- I would love to have some interviews with the people that said that. And just, but see, to me, this is part of it. I mean, we're we're a hundred and forty character at a time uh, generation now. Where I mean. Mike Wallace, we talked about Mike Wallace abusing the the KKK people on TV. I mean, if you had one of those people on TV who essentially tried to explain to us why the ISIS, I think they would destroy all that themselves. I mean, it's almost like, once again, the free speech of exposing these people. Well, that's what he does. Ami does that. He he like did a whole thing on uh, voter registration cards and he went to Berkeley and everybody said, oh, these people can't possibly – these people don't know how to do – these people – the right, most racist statements you've ever heard in your life, these people. So then he went into Harlem and went, uh, could you get a card? They were like, yeah. I, could I get it from my iPhone or do I have to go to the DMV over here on the corner? <laughs> I mean it's like, of course. It's like it's the right, most racist attitudes in the world. But it's why I hate everybody. That's why I end up in the middle because I'm sympathetic to the, the everything. I'm sympathetic to the desire for uh, tolerance. I'm sympathetic to pr- preferred gender pronouns. I'm sympathetic to all that. It's just – and I'm sympathetic to people having a very strong opinion about right to life, things like that. I, I, I'm sympathetic to it. I, I understand how people can hold these values dear and, and I'm deeply sympathetic to it. But as a pragmatic reality, I end up hating everybody because ultimately the, the, exactly what we're talking about, this brilliant system that was set up, the freedoms that we were afforded, all that is getting trashed in the process of all these – Deeply sympathetic and meaningful ideas and ideologies, but they are they are undermining or they're eroding into what unfortunately used to keep us all together is so important. Could you suggest – this is just a suggestion yeah. – that there is a strain of American DNA that has always – been the holier than thou moral. I mean, for example, the moralizing. The sure. Mor- yeah, sure. The prohibitionists, sure. for example, oh, and all yeah. that. Where you turn around and you go, this is a modern day version of whatever that gene was, just manifesting in a twenty first century way. Well, just hearing you say that makes me feel good. So it must be something <laughs> real in that, be- or maybe because- it just feels good. No, no, it feels good because I thought, oh, you mean we may have been here before in some other fact. Well, and, and, doesn't, and doesn't it rise and fall? Of course, you know? I, I'm hoping. See, that's my fear: is that it feels. Feels so deep now, you know. It feels so intense that I, I, I fear we're not coming out of this. But I, I, I have faith well, it we might, will. Might be a tipping, it might be like a tipping point capsizing thing where the, the boat often writes itself, but that's no guarantee it won't capsize. That's that's what made me feel so fearful about it. But but I am seeing people sort of congregate in the middle, and I like that because that's where I'm sitting. I'm sitting looking on both sides, going, "Yeah, you got a point. Yeah, you got a point." But mm-mm. well, we gotta, I, th- I think it's like you we, said. Once it's the the equivalent of the moral death penalty for asserting anything um, beyond the catechism, um, yeah. that becomes a problem because then, as you said, you can't even have a discussion without being a collaborator. I, I would 
would just like the freedom to be reestablished. That's why the libertarian sort of moniker sort of comes up for me. I, even though I'm not a libertarian, really, I, I kind of I'm sympathetic. I think right? Americans, as as a group, have a broad libertarian streak. Absolutely, and and I. But if they would just reentrench in the the freedom to take care of our family, take local, take care of our local issues, our, our family, our well, children. Now you're Jeff. Now we're going back to Jeffersonian well, agriculture. Yeah. F- fine. Although I am, but I am sympathetic to Hamilton and his uh, his uh, economic structure because that's what allowed us to develop the way we did. The problem we have, though, with the you know, like like I'm sympathetic to states' rights myself. Our yeah. problem is just as human beings, the way we are, we can't help but abuse that thing, right? We all understand what happened to states' rights. It, it became uh, uh, a cover to allow things to happen that we had grown away from allowing anymore. I mean, you can't have separate certainly, but equal, certainly right? In California, right? Well, but I mean, I mean, I think once again we could we could make the point that these were good changes. I just read, it, and if your listeners haven't read it, it's it's dated but still incredibly powerful. What is it? Black Like Me. Do you remember that book? Sure. Okay, it's classic, but you know what? Yeah. They don't read it much anymore. Black Like Me, I, I come from a journalist background, and this is the greatest, most exciting journalistic move anybody ever made. For those of you who don't know, this was in uh, Jim Crow America, late 1950s. The journalist, who was a white guy, decided to, for lack of a better word, paint himself black so, yeah. and go to the South and live as a black person in the South. And I had a conversation with an African-American friend of mine who said, I don't know why you would recommend that book to anybody. Why wouldn't you find one of the good African-American authors who could really explain the experience better from their perspective. And I said, because if you're talking to a white audience, sometimes it's more powerful to realize that all this journalist had to do was literally change the color of his skin with a pigment, Mm. go down there, and his entire world was was topsy-turvy. The book is hardly more than a pamphlet. It's worth reading. It's incredible. And it made a huge um, impact at the time. It has been partially forgotten, I think. But you go read that and you realize, listen, there's a lot of things that had to change. And we're back to the same point. Oh, I, go, think, I think the Jim Crow era was almost more damaging than, than slavery itself in a weird way. I mean, I, I don't want to even Nobody, put but, those but, kinds but, of but, values But, but, but it, what but. it was was in a sense more hypocritical because we pretend like we'd solved the problem, uh, but we'd essentially so, kept it the same. Yeah, yeah, so bad. So, so but, but I guess we get to the same point, right? How do you solve those legitimate problems and make progress? Without going overboard the other direction, or is going overboard the other direction part of the correction? Like I, a pendulum. I, yeah, you know? I, I, pendulum is one thing, but going overboard, capsizing. You don't want yeah, to capsize. I, I, I just worry about that because I, I just, I just would love to see us all gathering around. I just maybe it's just a ridiculous fantasy. Just the basic principles that we all agree upon that keep us together. Let's get back to that. Just well, somebody has to talk about that. those. We don't get enough conversation. I about know those we don't. Yeah. I know. And and the, with freedom being at the center, and then how that's protected. Well, and discuss what that means. And you know what I what I tried to explain. But, to by the way, I began thinking for, in the eighties. I was thinking we had we had tested the limits of freedom and gone too far. Oh, that's and, interesting. And, and now I feel like we've gone fast back the other way. Well, I do find it ironic, and I tried to explain to people in one of my recent Common Sense shows. They're not very recent anymore. But, but, but I mean, it's interesting to hear, for example, some of the, um, uh, the Antifa crowd, for example, talk about hate speech and how you shouldn't let these Nazis speak. And I always want to say, listen, if you're really going to push for the government to shut down certain viewpoints, and you're walking in the same demonstration as people who have hammer and sickle symbols, don't you see the irony in that? If the yeah. government's going to ban – I mean, I grew up in 
the era where, where Nazis were made fun of, but communists were taken seriously. So are you really going to give the government the power to ban speech and then walk around with a hammer and sickle and thinking it's not going to be your speech that gets banned? Well, that's the thing that everyone, I think, is learning. Yeah, is we're all tied together by these your freedoms. He- you're chopping off heads today. It's your head tomorrow. Right. And that, that's the problem. Yeah, this freedom is the golden rule, <laughs> and you do unto others as you would like to have done unto you. I, it's uh, maybe ironic or I don't know what the right word would be, but but the fact that you call your podcast Common Sense, I've been thinking lately we need a new pamphlet. Like the new Thomas Paine thing? Yes. Yeah. We need a new Common Sense pamphlet that explains a, a direction. You know, gives us a, a sort of a, a rallying point of some kind. I, I, I'm, I you know, I, 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 would, I don't know what the word would be. Uh, jealous that they had that, that. That pamphlet really had way more impact than people really think about, right? It's huge. It, it huge. was huge. Oh, and not and, just in this country. Yeah, and the fact that he died on the streets of Paris, you know, what, 20 years later, it's just one of the great tragedies of history, in my, my thinking, that he was sort of cast out, right? Wasn't he? Sort of for some reason. Maybe he's a little nutty guy, but... And maybe it takes a nutty guy to write something that's so, you know. You know what? It, it is interesting. And let's compare it to the 60s again because, uh, you know, one of the friends I talked to who, who was at all those demonstrations, he said it was a special time. Yes, right? I've heard that too repeatedly. But, but we've had those in history. I, I would suggest that the founding father period was also a yes. special time. Yes. So, so you also get into these. Uh, when I was in college, I used to talk about the rise of neo-romanticism. And you'd get that from time to time. The 60s themselves were, were a rehashing of neo-romanticism where we talked more about feelings and nature. Yeah. And, you know, and then it goes through other periods which are much more. Realpolitik rationalization, yeah. you know, and and maybe this is all part, you know, if we're trying to talk about generations having different, you know, you have your neo-romanticist generation, which creates a rationalist response, which yes. creates, you know, and it's 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 back and forth. It, it goes back and forth, and I guess we're in one now, and I guess it's it's felt bad to those that have come before us, and we'll we're get. We're also and older, and I think maybe somehow, I'm old and yes. crotchety. It's or maybe I sit around Adam Carolla too long and hear him complain. I start to infect me a little bit. Um, but I'm fascinated by humans. I'm fascinated by the human experience, and I appreciate a chance to talk to you because history is my weakest link. And just to sort of sit and think about it is is very important. It's it would be really interesting important. to have you read a lot more history and then apply all of the knowledge and the other well, disciplines that you have I, to I, that. I'll tell you what. The only way I get to reading about history, that I get to listening about history through people like you, and, and I'm a good – I'm an auditory learner – but through biographies. It's oh, the yeah. only thing I can sit and read is biographies because it, to me that's, that's history is biography. I mean ultimately there are people that have said that I'm sure. Um, well, sometimes you have, a chance to get, you have a chance to get these fantastic writers too. Uh, right? Well, I, like I said, when we talk about Evan Morris and Theodore Roosevelt, I, he – Theodore uh, Morris clearly was, was that in the, love. Was that the War Lovers? Was Theodore that, Rex. Oh, oh Theodore no, Rex no, that, I'm thinking the, Evan Thomas. The Rise okay. of Theodore Roosevelt. That's, that's right. And uh, – and Eterno, too, I, the Hamilton book, I, I dig. So I, I think maybe I'm going to like this one on Grant. And, I, and they come to life for me. When they, and when the people come to life, the leaders come to life, the, the, the era kind of comes to life for me because I, I understand people. I don't understand economics or big social trends. Or anything. I understand people. And, the, and that's sort of where I dig my – I plant my flag. But I, I could talk to you all day. We could do a five-hour podcast easily, and maybe one day if you guys. I do to those regularly. I know. You know yes. I know. I listen to them. <laughs> uh, what, what's coming up on your pods? Do we look for I, I can't talk about it. I never tell what's you coming up. I will say that we're going to focus. What's, what's preoccupying you right now? Right now, a lot of reading. Uh, where? Here. What do you? What do you? What are you trying to understand, or what do you want to know about? We do two kinds of podcasts uh, with the history one. One, one we called Blitz Editions because we thought they were going to be short. Well, they're not short. It yeah. just it, now it turns out that one's about like the the last one we did was about the the the, the fight against the Celtic people. That that went on with Julius I, Caesar. I saw that. Okay, so, but that's a historical event, most like yeah. 
books you would read. The other stuff we do, the Blitz editions now, are more about an idea. So we examine Suffer the Children, the one we talked about was a Blitz edition, where we examine the question of child-rearing practices yep. having a big effect. So you use the d- different periods in history as, as evidentiary things that you can examine. I get it. Right. I so, it. so this next show is going to be one of those where we examine an idea. But are there things preoccupying you right now? Are they, are they, things are preoccupying me. Are you preoccupied by anything? Uh, well, you know, doing a political slash uh, uh, current events show, I don't know how to respond anymore. Because I'm like you, uh, in the sense that I, I want to talk this out yeah. and all I'm doing by talking it out is making everybody angry um, I think you have to do that I think you just have to make everybody angry just, just not uh, be careful not to not have hubris and not take sides and just try to stay with the conversation well here's the problem I'm having and maybe you have some advice for me and I don't want to run over I don't know what the time is but, right. but I mean um, an example is trying to have a conversation where let's talk about Afghanistan for a yeah. second so you try to talk about Afghanistan you have to explain how things got the way they are yes. but when you're talking to people their their horizon even if they know anything is often very short yeah, that's a and so you spend a lot of the conversation saying well of course you know this right yeah. and, and eventually you find out okay really contextually speaking We'd have to have five hours of pre-conversation. Well, you kind of do that in your podcast. I do. That though, is what I, I do. like. Context. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. Well, but that's what's missing, right? Yeah. Context. How, yeah. how does this fit into the larger scheme? Yeah, histories aren't moments. They're, they're horizons. And yeah. the, like you said, we talk about the founding fathers here, but the founding fathers are a product of the generation before them, right? We're all – what's the old line? I think it was uh, Marx who said that, you know, we, we get a chance to make history, but we don't get a chance to basically I'm, – I'm paraphrasing here. We don't get a chance to make it the way we want it because you inherit so much that's already – you know, you, take, you pick up the story in the middle, yeah. and then you leave it in the middle. It's interesting. Right? And I, I've begun to get interested in, in the sort of the, the French-Indian War period yeah. you know, when Washington was a general, whatever he was, what was he, a captain or something? Uh, he, uh, he, he, there was that one battle where the- uh, He lost. He yeah, lost well, he wasn't the commander. He was yeah. like a sub-commander. What was that? That begins with a B. I can't remember. Um, but in any event, that, that, that period, I don't think we all have a very- because we're so- Dazzled with what followed, I don't think I, certainly I don't really understand what was really going on then in some of these guys' minds that that set up what came next. And that's I know. tell people when they go to London. Sometimes if you go to London, that's your American history yeah. before oh, yeah. American. And, oh, and you yeah. may say, "Well, my ancestors didn't come from there." Yes, but the the institutions, the institutions and the expectations. Yep. You know, when they would talk about the rights of Englishmen. Yep. Well, the rights of Englishmen became the rights of Americans. At no, a certain no, it was point. all yeah. derived derivative, all exactly. derivative of the British. System. And when you understand that, you understand a little bit more about who those people were. Yep. Englishmen. Yeah. Well, my friend, thank you very much. It's really a privilege hey, to talk thank you to you. For having uh, me. Appreciate and, it. Uh, Chris, do you have any questions? Gary, you fund? I know your friends. Just of his. please come back. Yeah, man. right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I feel too. Thank All you, right. guys. Uh, thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. For call-in times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com.